Good afternoon. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute, and I want to welcome you here uh, for a very timely discussion about a very timely book. We are in the midst of a health care debate right now where President Obama and his congressional allies say they're passing legislation that gets tough on special interests, that holds insurance companies and drug companies accountable, yet those same special interests are spending millions of dollars to promote that legislation rather than to fight it. According to our first speaker, that seems like a paradox because of a fable that permeates American politics. It is, in his words, the fable that big business and big government are rivals, that regulation curbs big business and that, above all, big business wants a laissez-faire economy. Our first speaker and the author of those words is Tim Carney, the K Street editor of the Washington Examiner, and those words come from his new book, Obamanomics, How Barack Obama is Bankrupting You and Enriching His Wall Street Friends, Corporate Lobbyists, and Union Bosses. As Obamanomics explains, and as uh, Tim will explain himself in a few moments, uh, Obamanomics, uh, they explain why it is that under both the House and Senate health care bills, corn huskers aren't the only ones to get kickbacks, and Louisiana isn't the only entity whose support was purchased. To comment on Carney's book, we have two noted experts on public policy, Uwe Reinhardt, who is the James Madison Professor of Political Economy at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Affairs at Princeton University, and also a blogger for the New York Times. And according to a colleague and former employer of mine, John Goodman, Uwe Reinhardt is one of only two health economists in the country who have a sense of humor. (laughs) The other one is John Goodman. Uh, And our final speaker will be Ross Douthat. Ross is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and most recently co-author of Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream. So uh, after our uh, speakers give you their initial uh, thoughts on the book, we'll be opening up up to questions from the audience, and then we'll invite you to join us for lunch upstairs in our winter garden. Tim? Thank you, Michael. Thank you to the Cato Institute. Thank all of you uh, for coming, especially. I wanted to start with a video from the campaign season. This is April. Obama is up against Hillary Clinton in the primaries. He has a lead. He's got to knock her off. His whole thing, vis-a-vis Republicans and Hillary Clinton, is he's the guy who's going to clean up Washington and limit the special interests there. So here we go. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. The pharmaceutical industry wrote into the prescription drug plan that Medicare could not negotiate with drug companies. And you know what? The chairman of the committee who pushed the law through went to work for the pharmaceutical industry making $2 million a year. Imagine that. Imagine that. That's an example of the same old game playing in Washington. I don't want to learn how to play the game better. I want to put an end to the game playing. That's April of, uh, of 2008. Then we get a few months later. That's Billy Tozan, the lobbyist, the former committee's chairman that Obama was talking about. And this is the game playing, the L.A. Times headline, Obama gives powerful drug lobby seat at the health care table. What happened, according to the L.A. Times, was White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel met in the Roosevelt Room, which is just a few steps from the Oval Office in the West Wing, And they cut a deal. The top drug lobbyist, he runs uh, Pharma is the name of his organization, and they cut a deal. And the L.A. Times reports the deal that the drug companies got that Obama would drop that policy 
proposal that he was talking about in that ad. Now, that's the idea that in the Medicare prescription drug benefit, even though Medicare is paying for a portion of these drugs, they're not allowed to go and negotiate down the prices with the drug companies. Only the private insurance companies are. So Medicare was saying, we will pay for your drugs, but we won't try to get a better deal. Obama attacked that deal, and then in a, in a deal with the, the drug lobby said that he wouldn't go after that. And also he wouldn't go after the drug companies' favor they get where our government keeps out drugs from places like Canada that have uh, price control. So that means Canada pays less for drugs than we do. In exchange, Billy Tozan and the drug companies said, for some seniors who are on Medicare – there's the drug coverage goes up to a certain point, then there's a gap they call the donut hole, and then it covers a catastrophic. Said if you're in that donut hole, drug companies will sell you at 50% off or maybe even more drugs. Now, if you know how drug pricing works, where each additional pill just costs a penny, and it's the R&D you have to make up, if you can pick up new customers by offering them a discount when they're not getting subsidized by the government, then that's not much of a sacrifice, but it helps the seniors. But also... The drug industry would spend $150 million running ads to support health care reform. But there was more that the drug companies ended up getting. The bill obviously contains hundreds of billions of dollars every year down the line in subsidies for people to buy things like prescription drugs. The individual mandate, this hasn't been finalized, but it'll be worked out either in the final bill or regulations, will most likely include a mandate that people also have some generous prescription drug insurance. Employers will be mandated to provide some sort of drug insurance. We know that states in the current Senate bill, their Medicaid is mandated to subsidize prescription drugs more. And then biologic drugs are a complex, high-end sort of drug that are much more expensive. Regular drugs get five years where they don't have to compete with a generic if you're selling a name-brand drug. Biologics would get 12 years. So that's, it's harder to get generics. They'll be kept off the market. Drugs will be more expensive, more profits for the makers of biological drugs. So that's the Obama White House deal. There's more favors for the, the drug companies in this bill. But somehow Obama has managed to position this as taking on the special interests. Um, let me uh, – this is a quote from Billy Tozan back in March of '09 On CNBC, somebody asked him, you know, people trying to figure out whether to buy their Pfizer stock, is health care reform going to hurt you? And he said, think about what it does. This plan talks about providing comprehensive health insurance to people who don't have it. That means to patients who can't take our medicines because they can't afford it. $650 billion spent to better insure Americans for the products we make. That's Billy Tozan telling you, you know what, in healthcare reform will be good for Pfizer stock, so buy up. How did this happen? How did this bill end up better in January 2010 than it was even back then in March? One thing is the number three spender on lobbying is Billy Tozan's lobbying group, uh, Pharma, Pharmaceutical Researchers Manufacturers of America, but also Pfizer, the number one drug company, is the number three company overall. You see Exxon and General Electric are the only ones that spent more on lobbying in the first nine months of this year. Measured by industry, according to the Center for Responsive Politics, no industry spends as much on lobbying. That's $199 million in the first nine months of this year by the drug industry. Second place, insurance. Now, that includes both AFLAC and the health insurers. Um, that's $122 million. I highlighted Wall Street down below, $64 million. Wall Street spent one-third as much as the drug industry spent. 
you take doctors, HMOs, and hospitals, add them together, that's less than the drug industry spent. And those drug lobbyists are smart. This is a fundraiser tonight. It's not too late. You guys can go if you have $2,400 at Sonoma Wine Bar in Capitol Hill. Um, if you get $10,000, if you raise $10,000, you can be a host of this Martha Coakley fundraiser for the special election in Massachusetts. Others who have raised $10,000, you see the names uh, Gerald Cassidy, David Cassignetti, Tommy Boggs. Those are all lobbyists I've highlighted there who have clients who are drug companies, health insurers, hospitals, or all three. AHIP, the insurer's lobby, pharma, Pfizer, Blue Cross, everybody's covered there. Aetna somehow isn't. I don't know how they got left out, but their Washington lobby has a lobbyist that's going to these. These are the special interests. These are the people trying to elect Martha Coakley to be vote number 60 for health insurance. Here's pharma cash. Um, the, on the top is... 1992 election at the bottom is a 2008 red bar is a Republican nominee, blue bar is a Democratic nominee. That very, very large red bar at the bottom, 2.1 million, is how much Barack Obama raised from the drug industry. That's about equal to what John McCain raised plus what George Bush raised in both of his elections combined. It's the most by far anybody's ever raised from the drug industry. So what would happen? What's happening here? You could spin this story, you know what, the drug companies came, they funded Obama's campaign, they bought him off, he cut a deal with the drug lobbyists who are now supporting the Democratic candidates, and so there's this corrupt bribery going on. That's, the elements of that story are there, that's not the story I believe. What's going on here, and what's the theme of my book, and the theme of what I report on at the Washington Examiner, is that whenever government gets involved, that opens the doors for the special interests to get their way. So big government ends up, being, ends up benefiting the biggest businesses whenever it gets involved, contrary to the common myth. There's a few laws. I call them the laws of Obamanomics. Obama's the current president. These are nothing new. They're not under Obama. This was true under George Bush. This was true under Alexander Hamilton. This was certainly true back in the end of the last century. You see those are uh, on their shirts. It's, you know, the Copper Trust, the Steel Trust, Standard Oil. They're standing in the back there. That's true. That's what goes on, not literally, but whoever has the best lobbyist wins. If government's not involved, a lobbyist isn't worth very much. Having a lot of money is still better than not. But once you, government gets involved, buying the best lobbyist wins you the fine little details in the bill. Bills proposed, however good and reform it is, however, you know, you got your single-payer plan in there in January when it's proposed, the big guys don't like the single-payer, that's going to get knocked out. There will, what they'll replace it with will half of the time be something small government, half of the time be something big government, but just governments getting involved gives more of an advantage to the lobbyists. Another one, I call it the overhead smash. Regulation adds to overhead, the cost of doing business. That overhead is always easier to bear if you're a big business. Often, getting regulated is profitable if you're a big business because it crushes your small guys. Walmart's a great example of this. They support a higher minimum wage. They support a mandatory, the employer mandate in health insurance. They teamed up with uh, Center for American Progress and with uh, SEIU and said, we want all employers to be mandated by law to carry health insurance. And everybody applauds. They didn't applaud when... Walmart started offering the health insurance they currently offer. They didn't applaud as loud, at least, as when they said, now we want everybody to incur the same costs that we're able to incur. Because, you know, Walmart, what they do best is drive down prices from their suppliers. So they're driving down their health care costs. They're able to provide insurance. Smaller 
uh, retailers can't do that. And the confidence game, very important. Whenever you see a Republican talk about why we need uh, Wall Street regulation, like Michael Oxley, for instance, who's currently now the lobbyist for NASDAQ and some uh, private com- uh, publicly traded companies, Michael Oxley would say, we need to in- restore investor confidence in, in Wall Street. I'm a traditional guy. I think that should be the job of the companies trying to sell you the stocks to restore confidence in their stocks. But government benefits big business because it provides confidence there. Boils down to this. Every time government gets bigger, somebody's getting rich. That's uh, the, the general theme throughout my book. I hit all sorts of industries, and I think it's a theme that's increasingly being perceived since the Wall Street bailouts. People no longer find it easy to say that what Wall Street wants is you know, some laissez-faire, wild west where they're left alone. Um, but it's, it's missed too often when people try to tell the story. Who wins? Big business, who can hire the lobbyists. Bureaucrats who get more power. Politicians who get more power and more campaign contributions. And the lobbyists, whom however much Obama really does want to drive the lobbyists out of Washington. And I don't try to read intentions when I'm writing. Increasing government well is like you know throwing meat out in the back alley and expecting uh, insects and dogs not to come and eat it up. Increasing government control is going to increase lobbyist influence. The losers are small businesses who can't afford the regulatory costs. Business entrepreneurs who can't launch their small business because failed businesses aren't allowed to disappear. Consumers pay higher costs. They pay for things they don't necessarily want. And taxpayers obviously bear the burden too. That's a lead Barbie doll, um, and uh, because in 2007, you may remember, Barbies got recalled for having too much lead in them. Um, the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act of 2008 was Congress's response. Obama supported this and has implemented it through regulations since he's become president. One of the central parts of this was requiring all toy makers to go get third-party testing for their products. This could be expensive. The head of the Toy Industry Association, which represents Mattel and Hasbro, said, we were early proponents of adopting mandatory laws to require toy testing. This is the overhead smash. The regulations are much harder to handle if you're the guy who makes you know, chairs for three-year-olds in your garage. It's not so hard if you're rolling off a million Barbies to test one of them. And guess what? The uh, federal agency that regulates this granted an exemption to Mattel that they can actually use in-house testing because they met certain burdensome requirements that no other company has met as of yet. Another one, federal regulation of tobacco. Um, In the Rose Garden, when uh, Barack Obama signed this bill, he said, today, despite decades of lobbying and advertising by the tobacco industry, we've passed a law to help protect the next generation of Americans. Meanwhile, at Altria.com, Altria Group supports enactment of tobacco industry regulation. We have consistently advocated for federal regulation. Altria is the parent company of Philip Morris. Philip Morris is not just the biggest cigarette seller. It's a majority of the cigarette market as of their last quarterly report. It's a majority of the tobacco lobby in Washington measured by dollars spent. They've been supporting this going back to the late 90s. NPR said Altria and Philip Morris helped write this bill, which crushes their smaller competitors with regulatory costs, which could effectively outlaw advertising, which, of course, locks in place their huge market share. I mean, there, I, I'm going to end pretty soon to, to make time for uh, Uva and Ross, but climate change, you have the same deal going on. This is about big businesses lobbying to get rich and wearing some sort of reform sheen. 
Now, I'll say for, you know, if you're a real lefty, if you're a Howard Dean, a Dennis Kucinich, a Bernie Sanders, you've got health care reform that doesn't benefit big business. There are ideas out there that they throw out. They've got climate change ideas that don't benefit big business, but these never become laws because of the inside game, because the lobbyists get a hold of it. Nike, they got applauded when they left the board of directors of the Chamber of Commerce over climate change because Nike, they care about the planet. They want to regulate greenhouse gases. Nike makes all of its shoes in Malaysia, Indonesia, China, outside of the United States. Regulating greenhouse gases here don't add to their costs. Oh, but New Balance, one of their smaller competitors, who actually makes better running shoes, I'm told, they make their shoes in New England. They would be hit by these tax costs. So Nike's saying, we want you to tax our competitors' energy, and they're getting applauded for it. Alcoa is supporting climate change regulations here because aluminum frames on cars are lighter and they're much more expensive. And when they make the aluminum frames, it's much more energy intensive, and the process of making aluminum necessarily gives off CO2. So is there a net gain or benefit as far as environment CO2 for aluminum frame cars? We don't know, but we do know that down in Australia, Alcoa successfully lobbied to kill the climate change bill down there. So they make energy intensive stuff in Australia, want to be deregulated. They sell green technologies up here, and they want it to be regulated. General Electric has set up a business to make carbon offsets, which of course are useless products unless you're required by law to offset your carbon dioxide. So, and they're now, they're the number one spender on lobbying over the last 10 years, and they're lobbying for these regulations. So they're lobbying to make you pay them for the energy that you're already paying for. This is the way regulation works. And, I mean, I accidentally lost a slide. We, we can raise the, the screen now. I accidentally lost a slide um, about... Uh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Um, about uh, the bank bailouts, uh, where it's a customer standing in line at a bank, and the teller, the bank owner from behind the counter says, this is a bailout, and sticks a gun out and is robbing them. Um, so, I mean... The Wall Street bailouts, now to bring it back to Obama a bit, Obama's idea that he's battling and being tough on Wall Street, the, the holes that we can poke in that are huge. First of all, he renominated Ben Bernanke, who was Captain Bailout. The guy who came up with the original ideas for the AIG bailout, the Bear Stearns bailout, was a New York Federal Reserve chairman, Timothy Geithner. And if you've been following the headlines now, Geithner has aggressively been trying to hide exactly what was going on in those early bailouts. And Obama made him the Treasury Secretary. Geithner's chief of staff at Treasury is a former lobbyist for Goldman Sachs. You've got Rahm Emanuel, the White House chief of staff, who was a former consultant for Goldman Sachs. Obama has proposed more bailouts, and his uh, financial reform looks like it's institutionalizing bailouts. So... My point is not that Obama is some evil shill for big business. My point is that when government gets bigger, big business ends up profiting, and that both parties are the parties of big business. I, I wrote a book back in 06 that made a lot of the same points about Republicans. I could have written a Bushonomics. It might not have had as many details in the first year because Obama, because Bush didn't aggressively go about increasing government which didn't provide as many opportunities for this sort of you know, rent-seeking, you can call it, corporatism, corporate socialism, crony capitalism. So I'll leave it at that. I'm happy to see uh, what Uva and Ross have to say. Thank you for your time.
well while I'll boot this up. <clears throat> Let me tell you, I feel a little bit like the uh, town's drug pusher invited to a church. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time when I told my colleagues I'm going to the Cato Institute, they said they'll let you in. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Uh, so I get these lovely emails from Michael Cannon, uh, and it says, Tyrannus de Lenda Est. Now, most of you will probably write this off as the habits of a geek. Uh, but I had five years of Latin, and so I felt challenged to ruminate. De Lenda, de Lenda, what is that? And actually, it uh, goes to Marcus Porcius Cato, Interestingly enough, the elder, who <clears throat> was supposed to have said Carthago de Lenda Est, and it means Carthar Carthage should be destroyed. What he actually really said is, Ceterum senseo Carthaginem esse de Lendum. After every speech, no matter what it was on, whether it was agricultural subsidies <laughs> or defense spending, and he was a senator, he added that at the end, which says... And apart from what I just talked about, I have concluded Carthage needs to be destroyed. <laughs> <clears throat> now, he had a grandson, uh, Cato the Younger, and he's connected to the Cato Institute. <clears throat> Not personally, directly. Uh, <clears throat> he didn't endow it. Uh, <clears throat> but there were two Englishmen who, in 1720, wrote the famous Cato letter, letters to basically to propagate John Locke's theory on freedom. And that, I believe, was the inspiration for the name Cato, because I wonder, where does it come from? Uh, it couldn't come from the old guy. Uh, <clears throat> but there you have it. I call the Cato Institute sort of the lone, Lonely Hearts Club band <clears throat> because it basically uh, extols uh, rugged individualism and libertarianism and virtually all America's ragged individualists are, in fact, here. <laughs> there aren't any more out there, uh, which is one of the themes uh, I will make. Now, we are here to celebrate this book, and this book is a stunning read. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it's revealing in many ways. It's stuff we knew, but it's put together in a way that irritates you and makes you <laughs> angry and reflective uh, <clears throat> about our government. And it's a sequel to an earlier book, The Big Ripoff, uh, <clears throat> where, for example, uh, among many uh, things, he also talks about the great sugar family, the Fanhuls, who uh, essentially own the U.S. government, even though they themselves are not American citizens. Uh, <clears throat> Now, the, the question is, why the ad hominem, uh, why Obamanomics, and why not Washingtonomics? And he alluded to that, so I had that theme in it as a bit of a uh, criticism, but he already preemptively destroyed it with that lovely chart saying he could have used any, whoever the president, if Paul Ryan were president, either he won't make it because he's straight, or if he makes it, he will, there will be a Ryanomics books and sell out to big business. That's just how it's done. And here, uh, he already talked about this, um, Tim did. So I was saying if you look at this during a legislative debate, whichever business has the best lobbyist. And again, I say this existed before, and he says it too. 
it'll always be this way in this town. This is how it is, uh, how government works. And I like this uh, passage on page four where he said Obama's policies, he doesn't favor big business out of nepotism or corruption or out of tactical, but out of tactical necessity. He needs them as political allies, and out of economic reality, expanding government tends to boost big business. And that is certainly uh, true. So the themes in the book are big business makes tons of profits of U.S. government spending and therefore favors it. And I think the, the book really ought to be sort of distributed freely at any chamber of commerce meeting because <laughs> they're the guys, business council meetings. It should be given out free to all of these guys. I would really recommend, and I donate money, just to, to give it to the business roundtable, to give it to the business council, to all of these people because they're the culprits. We, you just uh, heard that. Uh, big business uh, loves regulation. Not us. I grew up in the uh, health policy world, and most health economists would tell you that almost all licensure of uh, doctors and nurses is not to protect citizens at all. If you really wanted to have maintained quality, every physician, like every pilot, should be retested every five years. No, what that is, is just simply to protect economic turf, and we all know that. Uh, <clears throat> the business oligarchy can and does purchase the affection of Congress by buying legislative favors. Uh, I'm always amazed how cheap these favors are. For 20000 you can buy a lot <laughs> on the Hill. Uh, regulation that favors big business and administration that favors big business Presidential candidate Obama made statements and promises during his election that are belied by his conduct as president. And frankly, and now this is where the drug dope pusher comes in, I would say basically the theme is America's system of governance sucks. <laughs> this, this is a very untoward way to run a government. I come from parliamentary systems, Germany and Canada, where you cannot buy legislators' retail, you can't even buy the party wholesale. Uh, I don't know how they buy influence, but it, it's illegal to do what is perfectly legal in this country. So let me look at the first. Big uh, business makes uh, profits. Well, the problem is, though, uh, what is it that bugs uh, Tim about this? So you have soldiers who need guns and tanks and helicopters and stuff and missiles. <clears throat> so the government collects money from the taxpayer, pays private producers who make the tanks, the cannons, etc. And how can you avoid this? The only alternative is government collects taxes, makes the stuff itself, and then gives it to the sailors. I do believe some ammunition is still made by the U.S. government, but almost everything else... Uh, is made by <clears throat> a private enterprise. And I remember when uh, a Platoon came out, our kids were very little. I took them there, and they were white as a sheet coming out. And I said, hey, you're upper-middle-class kids. This is not going to happen to you. You're not going to be in the rice paddy. That's going to be others. You're going to be shareholders in the defense industry. <laughs> and every time some guy goes, you made some profits. And every time a missile goes down, you made some profits. Little did I know that our little one decided to become a Marine. Uh, 
This is probably what bugs Tim the most, and it bugs me. Uh, and here you've got to blame the First Amendment. Whoever dreamt that one up, that <laughs> purchasing legislators is an expression of free speech. Uh, I didn't personally think that's what is meant by the First Amendment, but the Wall Street Journal pushes it all the time. Now you have this lady. Suppose she has no net worth, the all-American approach to life. You come to 65 without much net worth. Uh, would the private health insurance industry take care of her? No, can't. Should she just be left on her own to die? Do we want this? No. So you're going to have government look after her, and you have the same story again. It can either be government produced. For the, for the veterans, we use socialized medicine purely socialized medicine for the veterans, but for everyone else we use private producers. And again, the fact that the board of directors of the largest insurance company in America can actually take money from vendors. Imagine if you did that in a private corporation, if you as a board member took money from vendors. But the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee can do exactly that, and they are the board of Medicare. Uh, so here is uh, the, the ones that every time I go to Colorado, I see these guys on their Harley uh, jeans, a T-shirt, a bandana, no helmet, road freedom. Oh, it just reeks freedom. I was asking my wife, can I have a Harley? No way. Because, well, now here, this guy takes a spill, and you can just tell he, won't, he doesn't have a good suit on, probably no helmet. And then what happens when he is sick in the hospital, smashed to pieces, and it costs $200,000, and he has no money. Does he just say, hey, guys, I'm uninsured. I never joined the club. Just let me croak? No. He expects Mtala to protect him. He expects an unfunded mandate to look after him. That is what upsets me uh, a lot. The bulk of America's rugged individualists are really just descendants of Louis XIV., they spend their money on the good life, and then when they're age 65, throw themselves upon the mercy of the government. The operative mantra seems to be, when the going gets tough, the tough run to the government. And you see that all the time in America. Bankers, car manufacturers, Republican governors from Mississippi. I mean, my view is, don't build houses where you shouldn't. When they go blow down, build it up again. But don't make me in New Jersey pay for your little Häusler down there. Why did Trent Lott build it where he put it? Uh, right? You could make that case, but <clears throat> that's rugged individualism. I wrote this after the bankers uh, came to Washington. I hate mom and the government too, <clears throat> because <clears throat> I said, I ask here, why did mothers survive evolution? Because usually untoward creatures die, and mothers made it. And what do they do? They arrest human development with all their regulations. You can't, out in, you can't be out in the snow with jammies on throwing snowballs at the window. One of those stupid mom regulations when you're doing research on how strong is a window. Uh, <clears throat> but if you have a cold or if you're sick or if you're stuck and your car is stuck, whom do you call? Mom, uh, usually. And that's how bankers are behaved. They're no different from teenagers. Uh, <clears throat> and so this is the model. This is American banking. You're looking at it. That's what we've come to. And, and I think it's tragic. I personally believe 
the proper approach to banking would have been, and we discussed that earlier, prepackaged bankruptcy, you screw up your balance sheet, the shareholders go, the bondholders become shareholders, and you leave the taxpayer alone. Uh, that is so easy to do. I don't know why we don't do it, but it's probably what Tim is. They own us. Uh, <clears throat> if you want to see real rugged individualists, go to China. You see them there. Uh, you still see them there, and they're safe for contingencies. Well, when we have contingencies, we run to the government uh, <clears throat> to save, have them save. They make big uh, of regulation. I already discussed that, yes. Uh, <clears throat> they, uh, the oligarchs, uh, can and do purchase the affection of Congress and so on. And that is certainly true. I recall Dan Rather got very mushy as he tends to get tears in his eyes. As remarking, only in America does power change so gracefully during an inauguration. And I was saying graceful? You call this graceful? Graceful is England, where the prime minister who leaves goes out the back door and the new guy comes in the front door and there isn't much fuss. That's grace. Here, this is not grace. It's a major shakedown of pub private interest groups. To pay the 50 million, you've got to shake down a lot of guys who then own part of your soul. Why would we consider that graceful, uh, <clears throat> this sort of thing? Here's Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, raising private money for a pavilion in China. And I would tell American business, if you can't get your act together, don't go to China. Let the Chinese have that spot. They would probably know what to do. But don't ask the Secretary of State of a great country to go fundraising for you to put up a pavilion for the United States. Why didn't you pay for this yourself? Can you just see how bad that is? And that's what we are doing. So here's a great journalist. Uh, you will hear from him. Uh, and I quote him, probably steal his thunder, Obama baffles observer, as I uh, suspect, because he's an ideologue and pragmatist. He's a doctrinaire liberal, always willing to cut a deal and grab for half the loaf. He has the policy preferences of a progressive blogger, but the governing style of a seasoned Beltway wheeler dealer. And I, I don't know if I stole your thunder here, but I think that's a wonderful description of what uh, uh, there really is. Uh, <clears throat> And it's going to get worse. You look at this. Uh, where is this from? OpenSecrets.org. Every four years, the cost of a presidential election doubles. I mean, this makes, leaves health spending growth in the dust. Uh, every four years, you see, it was $340 million in 2000, $700 million in 2004, $1.3 And therefore, these guys have to sell their soul even more retail. Uh, unless at some point we stop this. Pres President Obama made statements uh, in the campaign that belied, and I'm shocked, uh, uh, frankly, uh, at this. But now uh, I, I'm, I'm going to get probably put on a no-fly list here, but let me, be, <laughs> let me be very outrageous. Supposing President Ronald Reagan, whom I very much adored and uh, still do, I, I just thought he was a great guy. However, supposing he had said, 
if I'm president, I may deploy U.S. Marines, and if they get hurt, I'll just pull out and pull down the flag and run. Supposing he had said that. He did. Uh, and in fact, the jets were ready to pound the Baca Valley, and Cap Weinberger pulled them back, uh, as you well know. President Carter, uh, supposing uh, Reagan had said, President Carter s severed diplomatic relations with Saddam Hussein, declaring it an Iraq terrorist state, which he did. If I am elected president, I'll send my trusted friend Donald Rumsfeld to pay court to Hussein and restore our diplomatic and trade relations, which they did. Uh, supposing that had been honestly said in an election. Uh, if any of our citizens are held hostage abroad, we can always trade arms with mullahs for the hostages and throw in a Bible and a cake to boot. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to expand the government-run health insurance program called Medicare to give the elderly coverage for prescription drug and call it catastrophic coverage. On top of that, if elected, I'll introduce a minister prices for hospitalized Medicare patients, a Soviet-style system under which the central government sets prices for the whole country, which he did in 1983. Uh, finally, I want to give the American people a massive tax cut, but I also don't want to cut government spending. So I propose to increase the federal deficit throughout my term and hope my successor will do the same. And here it is. You look at it. Uh, tell me where there was much government spending in the Reagan administration. This is spending deflated, so inflation taken out of it. And you see, if you actually look at the next slide, uh, and you see President Bush did the same, spending just totally out of control. Uh, and here you have, uh, you can see the deficit uh, right here. President Reagan actually ran on the slogan, that he would balance the budget by 1984. No such thing uh, was ever, uh, did ever occur. I wrote this up at the time, got in trouble with the Princeton alumni over it, and anyone who gives me their card, I'll email it to you. But I quote here George Will, who said, let this be said for the Middle Ages, people understood government. They especially understood that kings read presidents, not parliaments read Congress, are the principal impediments to reasonable public finance. After 500 years of enlightenment, there is less understanding today. Americans think Congress is the big deficit maker. Never mind that while Reagan has been presiding over the production of more than half of this nation's federal debt, he has not found much to veto on budgeting grounds. This is because Congress has spent about what he has requested and Congress has enacted as many balanced budget as he has submitted. And there was in the Wall Street Journal a table. Uh, there's virtually no difference between what was done. So um, I, I think a major tragedy in our democracy is that the American people, and probably the people everywhere else, Canada, Germany too, do not want to hear the harsh truth during an election campaign. It's really our fault because we can't deal with it. They want mellow messages that if the candidate before them wins, everything will be made right painlessly. That's what we want. And that is why politicians say one thing during an election and often do the opposite once they're governed. You know, it reminds me of uh, <clears throat> Jack Nicholson when he says, you can't handle the truth. And that was actually very much meant to the American people. It had to do with the Marines. Our son says that too. 
he obviously can get very angry at me and says, you can't handle the truth. You send us out there to do stuff, and you can't <coughs> handle the truth of what we do, which is true, but it's also true with uh, government. So to sum up, this is an eye-opening book that should be given American citizens pause, giving, uh, that should give to as they uh, boast to the rest of the world that we have the best government in the world. I'm no longer convinced of that, given the way we finance it. The book's power is muted a bit by being unduly ad hominem, which uh, I guess uh, I read it that way, that it's if Obama just went away, these problems would go away. And I would say no. He's just business as usual in that regard. And I would have said there are two alternative titles I'd recommend. One is, if you ever again trust a presidential candidate's worth, I'm, you may want to buy my oceanfront property in Iowa. That would have been a very good uh, title. And here's one again, the no-fly stuff. Uh, what were the founding fathers smoking when they gave us a government that sells economic favors retail? So thank you for your uh, So that's, uh, that's kind of a tough act to follow. Um, I sadly do not have a wonderful PowerPoint presentation, um, but I thought I would try bringing us down, down to earth and talk a little bit about the immediate political situation. Um, and to that end, I brought a few quotations that I thought I'd read, basically just to show the power um, among right-wing talking heads, rabble-rousing populist pundits and so forth, of the message that Tim has in this book. Um, so I'm going to start, start with a, a harsh critique um, that a prominent pundit issued against Robert Rubin, uh, the Treasury Secretary, of course, and uh, the, in the Clinton administration, head of Citibank and so forth. Um, Rubin had been opining on the state of the economic future, and uh, this female pundit wrote that Rubin's resume is the personification of Obamanomics in action as he seamlessly moved between political positions, director of the National Economic Council, treasury secretary, private positions as a board member and senior counselor at Citigroup. He received over $126 million in cash and stock. Advisory positions, including serving on the president's advisory committee for trade negotiations and the SEC's market oversight and financial services advisory committee, and stints on a World Bank task force and his current position as co-chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. Rubin represents part of a new transnational class of elites who've taken over this country, this woman wrote, sounding a lot like Sarah Palin, I'd say, the mover and shaker who serves at one at the same time as business consultant, think tanker, TV pundit, and government advisor. So that's pretty tough stuff. Um, let, me, let me give you another example of analysis from a D.C. political journalist who says, as the Republican Party shrinks, corporate interests are crawling en masse inside the big tent being pitched by the Democratic Party. Writing on the Atlantic's website, Scott Bland and Ronald Brownstein identify the emergence of the Democratic Industrial Complex. Energy and healthcare companies, automakers and banks all understand that the Democrats control their fate, so they've cast in their lot with the majority party in a big way. John Kerry got less than 20% of the donations from electric utilities. Barack Obama got almost 60%. So far in this cycle, Democrats have captured two-thirds of the donations from the healthcare industry. 
Big business's old legislative strategy was centered on opposition to progressive initiatives, but the new strategy is to subvert legislation through co-optation, as in health care and cap and trade. At these negotiations, to use the president's favorite phrase, everyone has a seat at the table except the lobbyists get by far the best seat. So again, there's a strong, strong words. I want to conclude uh, with a quote from a prominent cable news figure. Some of you may recognize this rant, one of the most impassioned attacks that I've heard to date on the president's health care bill. The Senate bill with the mandate must be defeated, if not in the Senate, then in the House. Health care reform that benefits industry at the cost of the people is intolerable. And if this heinous mandate becomes law, there is yet further reaction required. I call on all those whose consciences urge them to fight the on, to use the only weapon left to us if this bill as currently constituted becomes law. We must not buy federally mandated insurance. And I hereby pledge that I will not buy this perversion of health care reform. Pass this at your peril, Senators, and sign it at yours, Mr. President. I will not buy this insurance. Brand me a lawbreaker if you choose. Fine me if you will. Jail me if you must. <laughs> Now, of course, so with, with that one, you probably get, get the shtick here. That, of course, is a quote from Keith Olbermann on MSNBC. Uh, the previous passage was a quotation from Chris Hayes, the Washington editor of The Nation. And the initial attack on Robert Rubin comes, of course, from that noted right-wing talking head, Arianna Huffington. Um, and what I think all of this tells you is something very interesting, actually, about political conversation um, in Washington. You have a really interesting kind of left-right convergence um, as the realities of liberal legislating uh, become somewhat more apparent. And this left-right convergence has happened before. If you go back into the Bush administration and look at, you know, the debate over the prescription drugs bill, for instance, you had strong opposition from the American left, and you also had opposition from most of the smartest conservative think tanks in Washington coming out against the bill. And obviously this was true with, you know, and energy bills and farm bills and many of the most pork-laden bills that passed in the Bush years. But it's really happening now, and it's happening, I think, because there are a lot of people, people who, on, on the American left, who really cut their teeth in politics in the Bush era, for whom this was their first profound experience of government and really of misgovernment. Um, and so they came in with, you know, they came into the Obama era with kind of blithe assumptions about what governance by their own side um, would mean. And in fact, they're coming to terms with the fact that a lot of what they hated about contemporary Washington in the Bush years, the, the legal corruption, if you will, associated with lobbying and influence peddling and corporate money and so on, is actually a direct result, as Tim rightly points out, of having built such a big, expensive government that every would-be corporate big shot in America feels the need to influence. And so I, it's been fascinating for me to watch, it, frankly, my, my peer group of liberals come to terms with this reality, the capacity of corporations to corrupt legislation, the dark power of regulatory capture, and the ways that big government and big business can work together against the public good. It's also been interesting to see uh, the liberal response, which has been defined by um, complaints about the structure of U.S. government. And this is, I think, one of the most interesting turns in the political conversation in Washington lately is you have prominent liberal pundits, young and old, at a time of seeming liberal triumph. I mean, the, you know, the, the health care reform is probably about to pass. This is a once-in-a-generation achievement. Um, you know, and there's a, a run of more modest legislation that's 
passed and signed into law. More progressive legislation, um, broadly speaking, has been passed in this era than, you know, any time, 25, 30 years, maybe going all the way back to the Great Society. But this is the moment when liberal pundits are saying, well, our government is broken. Um, and we need not only not only reforms of the health care system and so on, but reforms of the very structure of particularly the U.S. Senate. And much of their ire has been focused on the filibuster. But really, I think the debate about the filibuster is um, a stalking horse for what they'd really like to see, which is a much, much more sweeping fundamental reform. And really, uh, as Professor Reinhardt says, a turn towards the advantages of a parliamentary system, which does, in certain structural ways, possibly, arguably, reduce some of this legalized corruption. So that's been that's been the liberal response. And in a way, you could say it's um, you know it's sort of absurd, and it's you know they're they're getting 80 percent of what they want, and they're demanding that we completely overhaul government so that they can get 110 percent of what we want. And sometimes I feel that way reading it, but sometimes I think it's admirable. Um, I think that the Republican Party would be in better shape today if at various moments during the Bush years when Republicans were getting 62 percent of what they wanted instead of cheering and saying George W. Bush is the greatest president in history, they'd said, oh, well, yeah, but wouldn't it be better if, you know, these bills weren't such terrible messes and so on? So, so in a sense, I applaud liberals for making this structural critique even in um, – even in what seems to many conservatives to be a liberal moment of triumph. Um, on the conservative side, I thought I'd just talk briefly, um, briefly, I promise, about what, what the conservative response should be and whether one is really possible or whether, it's, whether conservatives should just say that, you know, well, our government sucks and we, we have to deal with it. And, and you know, that, that may be the place where, where we all end up in the end. I, I think that in the short term, you know, Tim, at the end of his book, as all political books must do, makes some sort of targeted suggestions for reform. And he also makes, I think, a broader point about the spirit that the Republican Party, ideally, if it is a conservative, free market, limited government party, should have in the age of Obama. And it's a spirit of, he, he says, libertarian populism. And I think that that's, that's exactly right. Um, I'm less of a libertarian than Tim myself, but I think libertarian populism is, in fact, the appropriate American response to the, frankly, extreme um, marriage of government and business that's taken place in the last couple of years. And uh, yes, of course, this has been going on dating back decades, but it is a pretty astonishing state of affairs when you have the government essentially running the nation's largest auto manufacturer, its largest insurance company, um, its largest banks, and so forth. And so I think, I think that spirit is exactly right. And I think that, you know, you see that in the Tea Party movement, you see that in politicians who are trying to harness the Tea Party movement or more often sometimes be harnessed by it. Um, so I, I think that's healthy. Um, and I think that it will lead to conservative, free market-oriented politicians winning at the ballot box, most likely, in, in 2010. Um, I think the question is what, what happens after that. And there, obviously, the problem becomes much more complicated. And I'm going to propose problems um, rather than rather than solutions, Tim has a really good laundry list of specific places from farm subsidies to what have you, you know, obviously to rolling back um, some of the bailouts and so forth, specific places where um, where conservative politicians could attack the nexus of 
big government and big business. The first problem is one he himself acknowledges, though, um, that the benefits of these reforms tend to be diffuse, and the losses that are experienced are concentrated. And this means that politicians always tend to rail about these problems in general um, and then support whatever their specific corruption is and, you know, find 50 other senators to vote along with them. Um, and this is why the conversations often, you know, Tim, Tim echoing people at this very institute of proposes a, a corporate welfare commission, um, just the way people propose entitlement commissions to deal with votes that uh, senators and congressmen don't feel like they can take without the cover of a commission. Uh, and I, and I, think that that, I think that that's an excellent idea, but I think it's, this is very important to keep in mind that the politics of this kind of thing, I mean, this is what you see with the Tea Party, right? You see the tremendous appeal at this time of government, government bu- business maximalism of a rhetoric of limited government. And, you know, limited government positions had grown steadily less popular in the period from the Gingrich Revolution till the financial crisis. And over the last year, if you're polling Americans, this is a great time for limited government. It's a great time for low taxes. But that's partially because nobody's actually trying to limit government yet. And once you get into the specifics of it, I think you'll run into a lot of problems. And this, the second problem, and again, this is something that, that Tim admits in the book, is that Democrats may be becoming America's other party of business, let's say, but the idea of taking sides against corporate America is still foreign to many, many, many Republicans. And maybe this won't be true when, you know, Marco Rubio is in the Senate leading the charge and so on. But for the moment, if you look at the debates we're having now, it isn't clear that Republicans are offering any kind of clear alternative. You know, if you take the debate over financial services regulation, right, it's totally, totally arguable that the reforms the Democrats are pushing have been captured to some extent by Wall Street and that they're institutionalizing a culture of bailouts. Um, However, it's not clear what the Republican alternative is except to basically leave the current system in place. And uh, the Republican position on Wall Street regulation seems to be to do exactly what their Wall Street donors want them to do, instead of letting the Wall Street donors tweak their proposed regulations. The same goes for the reimportation of prescription drugs, right? This is a case where Tim makes a very eloquent case that free market conservatives should support the reimportation of prescription drugs from overseas to break the power of price controls in other countries that drive up costs for American consumers. Well, when this, this was something, and this was a classic broken promise of President Obama to support this, and Byron Dorgan brought it up for a vote, and it, you know, failed to break, uh, have a filibuster-proof majority, so there are points for the anti-filibuster side. Um, but if you look at the, the voting rolls, it, it, this was actually an interesting case. It split, it split the two parties wildly, but um, it wasn't a party-line vote by any stretch of the imagination. But there were many, many, many Republicans who f- found the idea of voting, voting to import prescription drugs from overseas totally foreign um, to what their donors would want them to do, and so on. And you can, you can go down the list. There is, there is nothing like a comprehensive Republican anti-Obamanomics agenda, and there isn't really a sign that one's emerging. And the final problem, and this is the deeper long-term problem, I think, for partisans of limited government, is that the most successful arguments that are being made against, by conservatives against um, the Obama administration's proposals tend to be defenses of middle-class entitlements. Um, The Republicans' defenses of Medicare have been the most successful card they have in their deck to play against Obama's health care plan. But in fact, the only way 
you could imagine an American government that simultaneously lives up better to the ideals that Tim is speaking about and does some of the necessary things that Professor Reinhardt is talking about is a much more rigorously means-tested welfare state, a welfare state that still exists, that still is there when your 67-year-old grandmother can't afford some of her prescription drugs, but isn't there when your 67-year-old grandmother can afford her prescription drugs and so forth. And that's something that the, uh, the free market side of the argument should be supporting, but in fact, the free market party in America oscillates wildly between sweeping denunciations of big government on the one hand and support for existing middle class entitlements on the other. So in, in the long run, even if some particular victories on regulatory fronts and so on are won, if you look at the trajectory of government spending and government power in the United States over the next 50 years, it's all driven by entitlements. And there's a great danger, I think, that the Tea Party movement, libertarian populism and so forth could win some, some short-term battles um, but use tactics that help them lose the larger war. So thank you very much. I'd like to thank all of our speakers, and um, uh, in particular, uh, Professor Reinhardt. I've actually been trying to get you here for a long time to speak at the Cato Institute, uh, but uh, and, and given your uh, mostly kind comments about the the Cato Institute and your and your not so kind comments about the U.S. system of government, I have to inform you that. Um, a gentleman named Adam Smith actually anticipated and dismissed your critique of the U.S. government 200 years before you made it, and over a dozen years before, or around a dozen years before the Constitution was even written. We're all familiar, or we should be familiar with Adam Smith's quote, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment or diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. This is largely the theme of, of Tim's book. Few people are familiar with what came after that sentence. Smith continued, it is impossible indeed to prevent such meetings by any law which either could be executed or would be consistent with liberty and justice. And that's Adam Smith's way of saying, Professor Reinhardt, back off the First Amendment. <laughs> but, Smith continues, but though the law cannot hinder people of the same trade from sometimes assembling together, it ought to do nothing to facilitate such assemblies, much less render them necessary. And I take that to be Smith's way of saying, if you have a problem that you want to get solved, and it goes beyond those core functions of government, such as those that are enumerated in the Constitution, find other ways to solve those problems. So uh, with that, I want to uh, it, uh, invite any of our speakers to respond to anything that they've heard already. And if not, we can take questions. I'd, I'd like just a quick response. Um, part of uh, Professor Reinhardt said, you know, what's, what's the problem if we've got, you know, things that have to be done, government or society's going to do it, and somebody's standing in the middle and making a profit? And that's the best question to ask, I think, because ultimately I don't think my arguments or my pointing out that somebody's getting rich in the middle constitutes a conclusive argument against doing this government program. Um, you know, food stamps make private food manufacturers, make farmers rich. And uh, somebody could say, all right, that's fine. I don't like transferring money from taxpayers to Kellogg's, but if that's what it takes to feed the poor people, then fine. So it's not a conclusive argument against any of these government programs to point out that somebody's getting rich. I think it adds three things. One points out the lie that the 
limited government side is a pro-big business side and the other guys are the reformers. That's most of what I'm trying to do in the sort of political scrum. Two, we ought to take a grain of salt when we realize the people who are saying, oh, we need to throw billions of dollars at banks in order to save the whole economy. The people who are saying that are the people who want us to throw billions of dollars at them and the, that the people who are helping writing the policies are getting rich. That ought to make us skeptical more skeptical about the big government policies. And finally, to libertarians, don't trust big business. Stop di- describing yourself as pro-business. Don't think that just because somebody's Ralph Nader's enemy that he's your friend. So that's sort of the, the so what, my answer to the so what question on the book. You too? Okay, well then we'll take questions. I'll ask you to wait till the microphone reaches you, and when it does... Please identify yourself and uh, make sure that what you have to say is actually a question. And uh, so let's let's start right there on the uh, in the middle of the room. I think that gentleman had, by the camera had his hand up first. Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm an in- independent American. Um, what were you, what are your all thoughts on a nationwide salary cap? On all CEOs, you mean? Like everyone, I guess. No, nah, I mean, the, the, to the, I, I think the idea is uh, a horrible idea. And one thing we know is that if you have the right lawyers, the better lawyers you have, the better you'll be able to get around any regulations that government gives you. And so regulations just, I mean, what the Enron guy said about the accounting rules was these weren't roadblocks. This was a roadmap to our doing whatever we wanted to do. So any, I mean, Goldman Sachs loves the, uh, has supported the idea of pay caps on Wall Street. You see in England where they've got them, some hedge fund or some smaller bank tried to hire away some analysts. And the bigger bank came in and said, nope, sorry, you're breaking the pay caps. And that would be the way that Goldman keeps down startup hedge funds. I support one for Major League Baseball, though. <laughs> Gentleman over here. Hi, uh, Merrill Smith, Independent as well. Um, I, I, some of the solutions may be difficult because they're ironic. For example, I've often thought that as much as I despise certain office holders, it might be better if we increased the salaries of politicians dramatically not because I like them, but because I think we might get better ones in the future if it didn't apply to incumbents. Anyway, on that vein, I'd like to ask uh, Professor Reinhardt if uh, – I hope I'm not overinterpreting your remarks. I, I, I sort of think you're suggesting government funding of campaigns. That's, that's what uh, – after breaking the ice with the critique of the First Amendment. And I propose an alternative that may be similarly ironic and ask what you think of it. What if um, we preserve the First Amendment as written um, – and, and actually encourage more campaign donations. I mean, I don't think it's too much to spend. We spend more advertising Coca-Cola and Pepsi in the whole. But diffuse it more, for example, by, well, one alternative would be to eliminate McCain-Feingold altogether, which I know would get a lot of support in this room. But let's say we kept that but actually made campaign contributions tax-deductible as charitable, other-oriented activities, which would have the def- effect of in- Diffusing um, and diversifying the campaign contribution source and hopefully maybe break the monopoly of the small number of elites who apparently are able to afford without a tax deduction to fork over a couple thousand dollars. Just a thought. Would that be helpful? Well, uh, 
I think economists, or at least this economist in general, doesn't like making anything tax deductible, absolutely anything. Charity too, charity included. I, I write to my students about that because it gives people different leverage depending on their income. And in a political sphere, you might not want this. Uh, so even say with charity, I always tell my students I happen to like a charity where we buy M50 uh, caliber machine guns to kill whales. And <clears throat> I, I run that charity. And with a good lawyer, make that a charitable enterprise. <laughs> I, I literally have a, a thing where they hunt uh, endangered species, donate the, the uh, uh, stuffed animals to the museums, and, and the whole trip is tax deductible. And, of course, for a high-income person, for every dollar I move in a charity that I favor, I pay only 50 cents or 40 cents, while a gas station attendant, to move a dollar towards a favorable charitable object, uh, has to pay 90 cents for, to move the same dollar. So at the very least, then you should have a rule that says you get a 30% tax write-off no matter what your income bracket is. Because otherwise, I think this thing wouldn't really be workable. In fact, I think, frankly, it would make it worse. Because now, if I'm very rich, I can buy the soul of a legislator or of an administrator, and I get the taxpayer to pay for half of it. <laughs> uh, so that's even worse. Uh, I, I don't think that... Yeah, but but I'd still have you uh, much more leverage because for every dollar I spend, I get two or two and a half dollars worth of legislator's soul, while a gas station attendant gets much less for the same dollar they spend. They they get maybe a pinky toe. Uh, so I don't think that would, to my mind, solve the problem. Next question up here in the front. Alan Ritter, independent citizen. Um, Please speak into the microphone. Independent citizen. My question is, um, well, first of all, it's a, a, a more like a general comment, and then I um, and I'm direct some towards you afterwards. Um, if Obama represents a fascist leader, you know, if, if, if Obama represents a leader who is merging business, big business with heavy military spending and protecting both those interests, doesn't that, doesn't that also mean that Obama, if he represents these interests, war is going to continue and the cartelization of the economy will continue and the protection of these forces will continue? And if that's the case, what must we do as American citizens to prevent this from continuing? Because as we've seen in the past, war will continue and the hardships and the, and the depredations upon the people will continue. And, this, and I think that, that, that's, that's what he represents. And I think your book speaks that's, to that's, it. Okay. To it. And for Mr. Reinhardt, it, the question is, if, if, we, if we can't handle the truth, then why do you write? <laughs> I want to comment on the word fascist there. I avoid using the word just because it's got connotation. I mean, people think about, you know, gas chambers and a lot of other 
things that went along with with fascists in the past. The arguments are the arguments that a traditional definition of fascism means a blending of business and government. Um, yeah, there, there's lots of arguments there. The semantics is, is not something I want to uh, spend too much time going. But how do I mean? I'm going to tie together the last few comments. How do we fight back, etc.? I think if there's enough of an uprising that people see, wait a second, you know, Goldman and the White House and the leadership in both parties and Boeing are all on the same side. This sounds a little over-idealistic, but yeah, that can get people angry enough to do something. Can they direct that anger? Well, that's that's a crapshoot. But I mean, there's a reason Ron Paul was able to raise so much money from small contributions, and even Obama, just by acting as if he, or even intending, whatever, that he was up against a moneyed interest, that sparked people in 08, even before the um, before the bailout. So it could possibly work again, because the Republicans, another problem that Ross didn't point out, will lose a lot of their donors if they follow my, uh, my uh, game plan. Well, I mean, as to writing, you, you try what you can get away with, but you'd be surprised when you get copy edited how often my remarks going in are much more stinging than what comes <laughs> out, because there is... There is that. uh, It started at dinner some years ago when I said, I think the whole health policy debate in America is too polite. We are too polite. If I say go to England and see how their journalists write, or Germany, the editorials are much more stinging. You can't write a stinging editorial in this country. The Washington Post will water it down, and they'll take out these things that could hurt. I always say, whatever you do, when you write, you must never offend anyone. And I say, sometimes people need to be offended. We Uh, take submissions at the Washington Examiner. So you try to do the best. Same is true with teaching. You know, uh, you have to be so careful with teaching. I always say the best teacher is someone who's been lobotomized. They don't know if they're a man or a woman. Or a Republican or a Democrat. That's what students nowadays want. They want somebody lobotomized who can interpret the text to them so they don't have to read this old-fashioned software. And, and that's basically uh, a real problem. You find in Tocqueville, so our daughter says, well, Dad, you shouldn't be so surprised. Read Tocqueville. And I said, Tocqueville, I'm an immigrant. I don't have to read that. <laughs> she says, yes, it tells you... And in it, he says, I've never been in a country with less freedom of speech and freedom of thought than the United States. He says it. I could show it to you. And he talks about the tyranny of the majority that will not tolerate this kind of free expression. So it's a very interesting. A man who loved, obviously, America, nevertheless observed that he observed the conversation is too polite uh, in this country. That's why. You should have seen the PowerPoint he submitted. Um, <laughs> right on the, on, the, on the first row of the second section, please. Len Oberlander, Independent. I'd like to ask what your views are on what has happened with the history of the balance of powers in our country. It used to be very clear that the legislature would legislate, the executive branch would execute the laws and issue regulations to implement them, and the Supreme Court 
would uh, make decisions in conflicts between the executive and uh, legislative branch is what I'm hearing today saying that lobbying and corporate interests have diminished the balance of powers that they have brought together the executive and the legislative branch through financial uh, means and, and uh, corporate influence and that the balance of powers and, and, and separation of powers has grossly changed. And along with that, uh, as a corollary, there has been a philosophical basis in the private sector that made it a crime to, for corporations to collude to fix prices, whether it was through costs or or other means. It seems like prices are being fixed now by corporations and government mm -hmm. through uh, agreements. I'll, I'll quickly respond to that. The, the balance of power is changing, but I don't know if you can say on net in one way or another, but it's a very interesting question. I mean, Ron Paul says everything should be earmarked because the bureaucrats shouldn't be handing out the money. It's Congress's duty to do that. And bureaucrats are harder to lobby in some ways than congressmen, so that's a complex question. I don't get into it in the book. I, I think it's a great discussion to have, but on the, uh, uh, I, I guess I'll leave it on that. I think one, one, one interesting way to look at it is that, and, and this is actually one of the weaknesses, I think, of the liberal case against the filibuster, is that the separation of powers has diminished to some extent as the two political parties have become more ideologically polarized. So it used to be that the Senate and, and that Congress had much more of an identity as being separate and distinct from the occupant of the White House. Um, and as the parties have become more ideologically coherent, so the Republicans are just conservatives and the Democrats are just liberals, that's changed. And you saw this in the Bush years um, where congressional Republicans often seem to see themselves just as extensions of the White House. And to some extent, you see it in the Obama years as well. Um, and I think this is why this sort of a separate question from, from, from the issues Tim raises in the book, but it's why I'm skeptical about um, <coughs> when liberals say we need more of a parliamentary system. I think, in a way, we're getting more of a parliamentary system, um, but it's not clear to me, because in parliamentary systems, there's just, you know, there, there is no, no separate executive branch the way there is in the U.S. There's just the majority and the minority in parliament, and it's not clear to me that that's producing better legislative outcomes overall. Uh, so sort of a side thought. I want to thank for attending and call on one of our single-payer friends in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you hear me? Is it on? It, it takes a second. Can you hear me now? There you go. Yeah. Um, I'm Dr. Margaret Flowers. I am an independent, but I'm also representing Physicians for a National Health Program. And um, I thought we were actually going to be talking about more about healthcare today. Um, and I agree. I think the free market is fantastic for some things, but uh, I love it for buying my phone and those types of things. But healthcare is, uh, you know, health is not a, a product. Healthcare is not a product. We need it. Most of us don't really want to have to need it, but we do. Um, and so um, I'm actually... A, and I wanted to make the comment, two comments that um, I found my last press statement conference on the Ron Paul website because they appreciated my comments on the on the current legislation, and that many of my colleagues that I work with closely are libertarian. But I want to bring this to Mr. Reinhardt as an economist um, because 
we know that the only uh, health system that's going to actually control our health care costs and provide universal comprehensive coverage is a single-payer system. It gives people the choice of free choice of things that they actually do want, which is your choice of doctor and your choice of treatment. Um, many of us have to struggle to have our voice heard in the public sector, but you have a very public voice. And so uh, I wonder why um, single-payer has not been a more prominent part of the discussion among people of your stature who actually recognize that this is the way we can control health care costs. Well, I think in part it's recognizing uh, what Tim is writing about, that this would be dead on arrival in, in a country where interest groups own the government, and in this particular case, <clears throat> you, you couldn't get any such thing legislated. There is, of course, the, my wife is actually the one you should, uh, she is the single-payer uh, person, and she gives a nice talk of, uh, in Taiwan, how that worked, and, and I think I was the culprit, in fact, part of the uh, suggesting to the Taiwanese you're not that rich, you can't waste so much money, so start with a single-payer system, see how you like it. If not, you can always change it by uh, opening it up. The problem with single-payer systems uh, that she in her talks has are twofold. One, there's a tendency to underfund those systems. We don't have that problem here. Yeah, but, I mean, if it's just uh, in part... Medicare has to keep up with the private sector, but if it were all just single-payer, there is a problem with that. Canada has had this problem, and Taiwan has it. So th that is one problem. The other one uh, 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 disadvantage is if you make a mistake in such a system, it's system-wide. It goes everywhere, and it's system-wide, and it's very powerful and fast. The advantages of uh, single-payer, of course, it's an ideal platform for IT. The U.S. is lagging not in the production. We produce most of the software uh, for IT, but the other countries, Denmark, Taiwan, Japan, they're all using it much more smartly uh, than the U.S. is because we're so fragmented. So you have that as an ad uh, advantage. Although I must say Canada, to my mind, hasn't really taken advantage of all the advantages a single-payer system gives you, that you can do uh, <clears throat> cost-effectiveness analysis, that you can allocate resources better. I don't think they really have uh, done that yet. Another advantage, of course, is life cycle, that you have a life cycle model. So if you ever wanted to have genetically-based prospective health maintenance, in a commercial insurance that's ephemeral, that would never work. There's no incentive to do it. Well, in a life cycle model, you would have it. So it, I do believe it should have been debated more. The American people should have gotten the facts before them to say, do you like this or don't you? It has these strengths. It has these weaknesses, as my wife's beautiful talk uh, I'll, uh, show uh, and it, but I think the reason it never got any uh, mileage here is <clears throat> the Obama administration looked at it and said, this dead on arrival. We're just going to get killed over this. And Mrs. Clinton once told me that, too, that she would have favored a single-payer system. But in fact, President Clinton had said, no, it's, this won't go. So, but, I mean, we seem to be committed not to do it. And I'm, I'm going to... Well, can we, can we, 
I, I, the question's been asked and answered by Professor Reinhardt. I think Tim has. Yeah, just thought. quickly. And I'll tell you, first, I think we're on the road to single payer. So uh, it's, it's an ugly road, especially from your perspective, because if we have an individual mandate and rules about how much you can, you're only allowed to charge an old sick guy three times as much as you can charge a young, healthy guy. So it's a transfer of wealth from young people who have to buy in to older people. But in the middle, there's this guy called the insurance company taking a profit. We see this happening in student loans, too, where there's a, a big uh, a push now to say, why do we have these private lenders who are so heavily subsidized in the middle? Let's drive them out. I think down the line we're going to get this because we have a, a socialist wealth transfer system coming down our way with a profit-taking middleman standing there. But when that happens, I'll have even another book to write because you think, <laughs> you think Pfizer – spends a lot of money lobbying now. You think GE spends a lot of money lobbying now. There's one guy to go to to say, is your mammogram going to be covered? And do you think that's going to be settled by some CER panel? No, that's going to be covered by politics. We've already seen that with the mammogram talk. So again, that's not a conclusive argument against your single payer plan, but it's, I mean, for, for me, it would be good. It would be another job uh, created or saved by Barack Obama if he did it. Well, the thing, I mean, the other, the other thing to, to keep in mind is the distinctiveness of American political culture. And I, I think that it, the, the critique that conservatives and libertarians make of single payer is often, yeah, it's, it's just that, that these systems tend to be underfunded. I think if we ever had single payer in the United States, it would be the opposite, that the, that the biggest budgetary problem with, with an American single payer system would be that it was overfunded um, because you see what happens when somebody doesn't even say, you know, middle-aged women shouldn't get as many mammograms. They say maybe there's some research that possibly suggests that maybe possibly people should get fewer mammograms. Congress goes crazy. And I think Tim is absolutely right. If you ever had, if you ever had a single payer system, you would see that on a grand scale. It doesn't mean that there isn't a justice-based case for single payer. I'm just skeptical of the single payer will control costs um, case that people make. Professor, I just want to get back at Tim on this issue of it's a wealth transfer from young to old people. That is one way to look at it, but that's exactly what in my presentation I was trying to attack. The, the American 25-year-old who thinks he should get actuarially fair premium, but when he's 60, all of a sudden discovers government and says, <laughs> now I should get. I loathe that attitude. You go to Germany, to Holland, to England, to anywhere else in the world, young people have, they differ from Americans in the following way. They think they could get old. <laughs> Why we don't think that, I don't know. But they do believe I'll be old one day. They also think there, but for the grace of God, <clears throat> I am healthy, but I could be, in fact, very severely handicapped a year from now. It could happen this I mean, it could any time. So they think, actually, much longitudinally. So if you overpay, every German, every Swiss, every Dutch will overpay when they're young, and what they get is a call option on an insurance so that when they're old, they can buy insurance on a much favorable rate. And guess what? There is no public plan in Switzerland. There is no government plan in Holland. There is no government plan in Germany. You don't need it. You need it only in this country, the Louis XIV style country, where when you're 25, you just want really cheap insurance, and then when you get sick, you want COBRA extension, and you want government to pay half of it. I actually, somebody, a journalist, called me, should Obama extend COBRA? I said, no. It's a great teaching moment. 
<laughs> you want government out of your life? Let me stay out of it. See how you'll do. You're uninsured, you're sick, you don't have a job, and see how you like it when government is out of your job. It's this attitude that when did, I'm did, healthy... Did they print that? I don't have... Uh, yeah, they, they printed did? it. They did. Uh, <clears throat> it's this attitude when I'm young... Uh, I, I just don't want to pay for anyone else, but when I'm old, somebody should pay for me. I really, uh, I hope I had that theme in there. I don't like this in the American uh, uh, culture that, that you can be so selfish and then discover government whenever you need it. That's what I mean with, we're teenagers. You know, I hate mom except when I get hurt. Then she's cool. Are, are you, Professor Reinhardt, are you uh, today announcing your support for allowing 25-year-olds to opt out of Medicare and Social Security, not pay payroll taxes into the system and fend for themselves? I would very much like that. Oh, I would love it, but I'd like them to have a tattoo on their wrist to say, you know, I never joined a club, and if I'm now up against a tree bleeding, just let me croak. Uh, I'd be very happy, and I would, I would. <laughs> I would walk away. I think it would be a very good thing to tell a young person, you don't, you know, this works in Germany too. In Germany, you can opt out of the statutory system anytime you want if your income is at a certain level. Very few people do it because if they go in the private system, they say, please, uh, go to the private system, but you can't come back. You cannot come back. Well, here you give the option you can change every month. This is lunatic. That you get the worst, the worst adverse risk selection. I mean, our actual. You're talking about the current legislation. Huh? You're talking about the current legislation? Almost all. I mean, even Medicare, that you can go into Medicare Advantage. I would say you want to go into Medicare Advantage, stay there for 10 years. You can't come back. You can't come back into the public system. I want you to make sound life cycle decisions and not game the system uh, in the most uh, unseemly way, which is what, uh, in fact, Medicare people do. I think we're out of time, so that'll have to be our last question. I want to thank our panelists for coming and thank all of you as well, and I invite you to join us upstairs for lunch. <laughs>